Welcome to another episode of the Souvenirs Podcast. This week we hear from David Giles. David spent his youth hanging around the ranch. His parents, Buford and Ann Giles, worked at the ranch through the 70s and 80s. We'll get started right after this message from our sponsor. Oh, wait, we don't have any sponsors. But hey, if you can envision a clever ad right here promoting your business, give me a shout. We'd love to have you as a sponsor of the podcast. For now, we'll go commercial free. Get us started, David. Tell us a little background about your family. So my father was born in Milagro, New Mexico in 1925, and he was the youngest of four. And if you're on I-40, there's a Texaco station just past Klein's Corners on the north side of the road that was my grandfather's. Um, and they farmed and, and eventually became the um, service station. And he like kind of always wanted to be a cowboy. He uh, your dad or your my dad. dad, my dad. Yeah, um, he would talk about his family when they go to like the county fair or whatever. His father, my grandfather, would give him a quarter, and my aunt would buy candy or, and he just spent all of it on the pony rides. Um, I hate to say this, but as typical of the 1920s, 30s, my grandfather was abusive. You know, uh, an eighth grade-ish saw my grandfather knock his grandmother, my grandmother across the, the room, and he beat up his grandfather and ran away to the farm down the road and lived there for, for a while. And he joined the Navy. He got a fake idea to join the Navy in, at, at 17 for World War II and um, was on an aircraft carrier that was part of the Doolittle raid. Like they, they went from Hawaii to aircraft carrier to aircraft carrier to get over. And he was on that, one of those aircraft carriers. Um, after the service, he came back and he started working in as a cowboy at resorts. He would work, he worked at Bishop's Lodge in the 50s. And Bishop's Lodge is tied to the ranch because the Thorpe family and the Gantt family kind of shared horses. They would be here in Wickenburg for the winters and in New Mexico for the summer. And, you know, that's how we found out about uh, Lost Cab when we moved here in the 70s. But he actually just worked for the Thorpes. And then the Thorpes also have um, their brother, uh, Jim Thorpe's brother also owned Tancaverde Resort in Tucson. And my dad would either work at Tancaverde or Hacienda del Sol. And he met my mom at Hacienda del Sol in the um, early 60s and she was at the time working for American Airlines and she was taking her parents on a vacation. Now my mom was born in 1934 in in uh, Welland, Ontario or Port Robinson, Ontario and she was the middle of three and she her parents sent her to Catholic boarding school at Loretto Academy which is right I mean you talk about Beautiful setting. It was right, looked over Niagara Falls, the Canadian side. It was this huge school and dorm right there. Uh, my grandfather owned a restaurant, and, you know, she was, she tells stories of always having to work at the restaurant, always having to work at the restaurant. So when she was 18, she bailed and went to New York City and went to, like, community college, got an associate's degree, and ended up working at American Airlines. And that's how they met in uh, Tucson Hacienda del Sol met my dad so then they started got married there was kind of a nomadic um, resort deal that happened like but my parents they ended up getting a small place in the Finger Lakes of um, New York 
in, uh, near Garnet Lake in New York, and they had like a bed and breakfast. And they would do that in the summer, and my dad would take their Boy Scout camps and Girl Scout camps nearby, so he'd take them riding. And then in the winter, they'd go to Tucson. And in the 70s, Rusty Gant reached out to my dad, kind of probably via the Thorpes, and asked him to come be the head wrangler at Lost Cab. So we moved out in 70, 71, I can't remember exactly. And that's how we started our journey at the ranch. My dad had the job. My mom was kind of balancing around jobs at the ranch until she finally had the front desk job and then became the director of sales at the ranch. And we lived, if you're familiar with the ranch, and things have of course changed, so there's the stables and across the way there's like a four unit um, building that used to be housing. It was one of the only ones that had a kitchen. So we had like the first two units, I think, or maybe the first three. So we had the kitchen and then there's a small little uh, grassy area and there was a trailer there that um, the Welshes lived in. Uh, Frank Welsh, and I can't remember, I've been trying to, since we talked about this, I've been trying to remember names, and I can't remember, Millie, I think her name was Millie, and Ron Welsh, they lived there, and Frank and Millie ran the bar, and Ron was two years older than me, and so we both just kind of went to Wickenburg schools, um, and then there was that C-shaped area, that became, that was where the general employees lived, and then on the Palo Verde room, at either end of the Palo Verde room, there was two rooms there, and, and the Cowboys lived on the north end of it. Those would be the guys who worked for my dad. And then um, kitchen staff lived in the other end, but then everybody else was scattered around in that big C uh, building, which in the 80s, I think they called the beach. So the, how'd you get to school? I would walk what is now the golf course. There was like a so the, like the temp hole in the driving range, there was like a 45 degree that went to the road. And then I'd walk down the road and the bus was the last stop. Um, and they'd pick me up at, at the sign. On the north side of the road where the second hole is now, that used to be ag fields. There was like they, uh, two ag fields there. What were they growing? I think they were growing alfalfa. It was interesting because after we lived there for about six, eight months, then we bought a trailer and we moved out by Tommy Higgins, um, right above his corral there, um, which was much smaller at the time. The ranch was interesting because, I mean, it was a working ranch, and Tommy was such a great guy, so I think the, the Cant family. Yeah, tell me yeah. about Mr. Higgins. Man, I don't remember much about Tommy. Um, so Tommy lived out there alone for... We, we lived there from first grade to eight. So eight years, we lived at that spot. And Tommy was, he was the former, he had, I think he had the job, the head wrangler job before my dad. And he, he ran the cattle operation, which was basically him. And then he'd get, they'd have a roundup once a year and he'd get help from folks in town. He was a quiet, kind of solitary man. He didn't like it. I used to there's a little road that went from his, like, little... There was his house and then a big area where you could park. And then there's a little road that went to our little trailer spot. And I would, you know, I was doing... I would do kid things, like, try to fly kites and stuff like that. And he'd get pretty pissed because it'd scare the cows away. Um, <laughs> hey, you can't do that out here. But he, you know, Tommy was always... He was a, a good kind of neighbor to have. Do you know how many head they had? 
total speculation, but I want to say it was near 100. It, was, it wasn't a large operation. And I think they kind of maintained it at that level because when they do the roundup, I, they, they'd sell off because, I mean, it was Tommy kind of by himself. And all the cattle kind of went from his corral, I believe that would be south, south, east, all the way out to, um, there's a bunch of old dirt roads that run along there that go out to the cookout sites. And they ran around, were out there. You know, we'd see Tommy every now and then, mostly, you know, kind of the, the cowboy wave as you drive down the road. We would see Tommy every now and then stop to just have a little quick chat. Hey, how you doing? And we would see Tommy at the Cattle Rustlers Ball, which would be every spring. You know, they all just kind of stand there and drink their tours and smoke. Um, Did you have any siblings? I didn't, no. So you're only child? I'm an only child, yes. Age range, you were 5 to 12. Yeah, 5 to 12 um, out there. And then in it, we moved into town here and then moved to Anna Moberstag at a house. And we moved there for like when I was my sophomore, junior year. It was very solitary, um, which like I didn't bother me. You know, my life was kind of, you know, very fortunately, you know, Rusty and everybody was like, you know, you're just part of the family. Like, you know, they knew, they realized that my parents worked long hours, strange hours. Over Thanksgiving, Christmas, spring break, I was in the kids program at the ranch. Were you one of the only kids out there whose parents were working? Or? Well, there was myself and Ron Welsh. Yeah, we uh, and, and, and then June Nelson's son, Clifford. I don't remember Ron being in the kids program so much. Or Clifford being in the kids' program so much, but that was like, Ron was older, and Clifford's, you know, dad and mom worked different shifts, so he, you know, didn't need the daycare kind of piece. Did you realize you were living in a unique environment? Oh, for sure. It was in, in that period of time, there were the people who stayed all year, and there were people that just kind of lived here in the summer, and this town at that time was either very wealthy or support staff. And, you know, going back to the ranch, you know, I was there for a lot of the houses being built on the Mesa. And the, and I remember the first house you see, I go, oh, I think the name, the owner's name was Hines. And this was pre-cable TV, right? So he, even though we were in Wickenburg, we only got like four channels, he had uh, four rows of three TVs and, and it built in so that, you know, you, he could watch Channel three, channel five, ABC, channel ten, channel twelve. NBC, yeah, yes. exactly. But there, you know, he had just in case there were twelve on the dial back then. <laughs> the, like and again, it didn't occur to me. But like the people who owned Justin's Yearbook and Rings, they had a home there. The guy who started Toro Lawnmowers had a home next to them. Um, Fisher Body Corporation for cars was there. And did that bring in more children? None of them really went to school here. The one that I can think of that, that the Sterlings, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Sterlings, Sean Sterling uh, passed away about five years ago. Her dad, their Canadian family, started like the first radio broadcasting piece in um, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and made a lot of money doing that. And he ended up moving here. They would come and go, and then they finally settled down, I think, my, when I was in eighth grade-ish. Do you know what your parents thought about the houses going up out there? They, they, were, they were excited about it. They, I mean, because it brought in, like my mom being the director of sales, it brought in more opportunity for a convention business at the ranch. 
Was your dad living his dream? <sighs> was my dad living his dream? He wanted to be a cowboy. Wow. He, I, I, arguably, yes. Um, but it was also it was like it was very it was a, it was a stressful job because you know you're dealing with animals that are hopefully highly domesticated, but you're also dealing with variables like snakes and hills and horses having a good step on uh, as they're you know so there's always a fear of somebody falling off and getting hurt um, or having a wreck as the cowboys used to say and then you'd also have these extreme personalities like i remember one guy and had a came out and was really playing the cowboy part and had a pistol on his on his a head guest? a guest he you know was playing cowboy in the spring when snakes were starting to come out of the ground and they, as not uncommon in the springtime, came across a rattler, and he was insistent upon shooting it. And he was insistent enough to where my dad let him do it, and he took two to three shots and missed every time. And my dad was like, all right, that's enough. And he, like, conked it with one rock. Smack, done. <laughs> um, and, you know, and then there was... And I remember he had another guest, uh, a female guest that was, and I can't remember the name, but would always just give him the hardest time. And after he passed in, in, in 86, the next season, the woman came out to go riding and they put her on the horse and immediately the horse laid down and she had to like bail off and started to roll and she screamed, it's Buford, it's Buford. <laughs> you know, he's come back to get me. <laughs> what was your dad like? Um, quiet. There's actually um, a really shoe fly captured a or did a picture of him. It was commissioned by um, one of the guests at the ranch, and he was like a marble man. Always had a cigarette. Quiet, but you know, stern. When he you know when he spoke in a way that when he said something, that's what we are doing with authority. With authority, yes. So how long did he work in the corrals? From, from 1970, and he started the season um, in 86 when he got sick, and then 85, and, and then stopped working about October. So I pretty much worked until the end. Yeah, yeah. And it was interesting, too, because, again, I was like the, the kind of nomadic style of a lot of these people. So the first year we worked there um, at the ranch, we didn't have a summer in, income. So I remember he, and this is real foggy, I remember, but he went to Knoll's Ranch, which is in Payson, one year. And finally, that, speaking of the houses, you know, it got to a point where my dad was like, I, you know, I don't know if this is going to work out. We might have to look at other things. And the, the homeowners, like my father and my parents so much, that they gave him a security job in the summer to where he'd go to all their houses and flush the toilets drive by because there was no fencing at that time there was there was no fence along vulture mine road it was just straight in and nobody that i recall ever had any problems with theft but you know and it was actually kind of it was a it was a a charity to my father to go and almost all the homeowners hired him to you know kind of drive around and check on things tell me about your mom um so my mom (laughs) she worked her way into the sales position um, she, the first thing she did was a kids program at like Thanksgiving, which was, you know, it was four days and it's chaos. And were you in it? As and well? I was in it, of course. And, you know, she was like, this is too much. This is far too many children for me to deal with. I'm used to dealing with one 
and you know, 30 is too many. And then that led to a job at the front desk and she was very good, very social with the guests. And that kind of led to the sales piece. And so, and she really did well at that. She loved it. As a matter of fact, you know, according to her, that's the main reason they built on to the Palo Verde room was so they could handle bigger, better conventions and be more competitive with, like the Wigwam was a competitor. Flying E was always a cool place, but it wasn't necessarily a competitor because it was just so small, 13 rooms, I think at the time. I'm not sure how much they've grown to. Um, Wickenburg Inn would have this kind of like sine wave of competitive, not competitive, um, depending on what was going on. When we first moved in the 70s, Ramuda, that was a guest ranch at the time. Did you participate in any rides out there? Yes, we'd like, we used to at Thanksgiving, twice at Christmas, and then two or three times to spring break, because spring break would be very long. And what was that like? Oh, it was great. We did the Gymkhana's where we, we'd, we'd all compete. And that was like, the guests loved that. The Cowboys loved it. That was fun. That was a lot of fun. Did you win any prizes? Well, I was always stuck in the middle because I was, you know, my father was a cowboy. And so I rode a lot. That actually, when I was about 10 and I was like no longer doing, you know, I, it must have been after kids programs. So I was after 12. That was my job uh, during breaks. I would help bring the horses in in the morning and feed them. I think I didn't start saddling. When I was about 15, I started saddling. They were all too tall for me when I was... Did you get paid? Yeah. My, well, my dad would pay me. And then I'd close gates at the back of trail rides. So when we do these Gymkhana events, I'd have to compete against the Cowboys. And that was a tall order. So, <laughs> but, you know, it, 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 was, it was still, it was fun. And I tried. I, you know, I love doing it. That was a big ordeal to, to take, go to Wickenburg Anderson. There would be a flag ceremony where each of the participating ranches would ride in with their with their guests. And Lost Cab had these like felt sun turquoise blue with a yellow sun sea, you know, like a like a smock thing. It would go over your head. Um, somebody had a vest that was like a that was black or something. And then Flying E, I think, just had bandanas. And each ranch had a flag with their brand, and they would line up, and then they'd have an Amer- American flag and an Arizona flag, and they'd play the national anthem, and they'd ride around, circle, and then stop and face the, the attendees. And, and who would attend? Was it guests? All guests. Yeah, it was mostly guests. Um, sometimes some of the staff, if it was like that was at the ranch it was at, would come down to watch. You know, a lot of the, like, wait staff or bar staff would come down to watch the guests because they'd give them something to talk about during the meal service kind of a thing. And it would be the steak race, which would be four steaks, and you have to run, weave through them, turn around and come back, weaving through them. And the big one, because I always have somebody announcing it from, from the ranches. And the wild and woolly one was the ranch relay which was just riding your horse. You have a piece of hose that was like three feet long, and you'd ride as fast as you could. It was two guests and one wrangler, and you'd ride as fast as you could with the hose and give it to the wrangler, and then the wrangler would run it back to the other person, and they'd run as fast as they could. That was the big, that was the big grand finale. And did event. you go to any of the cattle rustlers' ball? Yeah, the cattle rustlers' ball was like a, that was a huge deal. And it was so big, you know, it would attract even people from town to come. And... Dad always had some great costumes. Um, the first one I remember is he got like a creature from the Black Lagoon outfit, and he had a sign that said, I'm the one who peed in the pool. And um, he was 
he had one of the old like 1930s bathing suits one time, you know, the one piece got thing was orange and green and a big hat and sunglasses. He was little Lord Fauntleroy one year. Um, so he had a sense of humor. Yeah, he did. He had, yeah. And it actually came, kind of, I think it came to think like, what's Buford going to dress up as this year? And that was a fun night. And all the ranchers would come. Um, they'd get a band or actually peso dollar in the, I can't remember the counterfeit bills. The counterfeit bills. That's right. Peso dollar and counterfeit bills. And peso would actually also come and play acoustically for the kids groups every now and then. I think I even at one point had a peso dollar record. <laughs> I don't know if that's a collector's item or not. Were there any memorable guests? Oh, there's tons of memorable guests. The question is, do I remember them? There's one family that has been coming to the ranch. I want to say this was a, this. I saw them this Christmas. It was their 53rd year from Los Angeles, the Mitchells, and their four kids. That you know was the dad, and then they had dad, mom. They have four kids, and each of those kids are like. I mean, it's like 29 people when they come now. And I remember the spring of the year always being the the, the most characters. And as it got close to DC ride. There was, um, that's when it got really, really interesting. One of the DC ride things, there was a guy that would come out. Oh, it's like to remember this name. But I was about, I was 12. And he had like one of those huge Cadillac Eldorados from the 70s, you know, a giant land yacht. And he needed cigarettes. And they just built the Safeway, old Safeway on the strip mall part. And he was too drunk to drive. And he said, Buford, Dave's going to drive me to the Safeway to get cigarettes. I'm this kid driving down Vulture Road, you know, barely seeing over the dash, taking him to Safeway and back. <laughs> and, you know, it was, it was yeah, a ridiculously big vehicle from what I remember. But, you know, it was, it was funny. Like, again, going back to, like, kind of country life here, like, I remember most of the horses would go to Bishop's Lodge. And it was just me and my dad. We'd feed the remainder of the horses here. And I had, like, there was a big Chevy truck that I used to drive, and my dad would throw the hay out. And I remember I had to use both feet to, like, push the clutch. It was a standard. I had to use both feet to push the clutch in and then just fight it to put the brake on and take it out of gear as we'd go. So there was about 65 that would be there during the season, and then about 50 would go back, 55 would go back. And did some of the homeowners keep their horses yes. there, too? Yes. And, you know, those horses had the life because they didn't get ridden very much back in the day. <laughs> um, my dad hired a kid he knew from New York who, like, his father died when he was a young man, and he just kind of attached himself to, to my dad. And he was actually kind of the same way. He wanted to be a cowboy all his life, and he's in Wyoming now. And they rebuilt the tack room. They made the, the saddles are three high if it's still that way. And then they had a board for all the bridles with each horse's name on it. So you, because they were all fitted, right? So you wouldn't have to do it over and over and over again. And then my, and that was a difficult thing. My father, he had to get a riding list because they rode twice a day. There was a two hour ride in the morning an hour and a half ride in the afternoon. And so every evening he would go into dinner and walk through and chat with the people and then you have to do kind of the carnival game of, like, if somebody wanted to ride, okay, guess their weight, um, guess their abilities, because you'd have to match individual with a saddle and a horse that would 
accommodate them, be it riding skill or be it weight or whatever, you know. And um, he would do that every night um, and, every, and, every, and at lunch. Back in the 70s, there were some people that came out just to ride and to shoot skeet. So their skeet range moved, I think, so now it's out by Tommy Higgins's, and I think it's only moved the once. When we first, in the 70s, it used to be just on the other side of those tamarack trees on what is now uh, the 10th hole of the golf course. Did you have any wildlife encounters? Um, I remember, so when we lived at Tommy Higgins's, we had this stupid little dog. I mean, you know, just, you know, it's just funny because think of my dad as this cowboy smoking, and we had this little poodly, small miniature thing. And it was barking like crazy one night. And we went out, and underneath the trailer was like a good six foot rattlesnake that was probably two inches in diameter, and then it had eaten a rabbit. So it was huge in the middle, and it was like slowly moving because I was trying to digest this thing. There was a desert tourist we saw one time crossing that road that goes out to Tommy Higgins's and a Gila monster, which to me, if you've never seen a Gila monster, they're the most beautiful creature ever. They look like they were just individually beaded, gorgeous animals. Um, bobcats, lot, I remember as a child, you know, we lived in this trailer and my parents were at one end and I was at the other end and as a young kid, you'd hear the coyotes that scared the hell out of me, but now I just live to hear a coyote howling, singing songs at night. Did you go off and explore? Oh, yeah. I, I used to, one of my favorite things is there's a, probably shouldn't say, there's a dump um, north of Tommy Higgins's in uh, where the trailer was. And I used to hike out there all the time just to, you know, look at all the rusty things and dig around in that. I always like climbing Vulture Peak. Um, Did you stay in touch with any of the kids? That- one family I've stayed in touch with the most is the Mitchells, the ones that have been coming here forever. And I saw them this Christmas, yeah. Do you remember the airstrip? I vividly remember. So that's a great story if you haven't heard this one. So the airstrip was fantastic. And that was really cool because they would actually, there would be a fair amount. Sometimes there were like fly-in guests. And Rusty had his plane. There's only, and I don't know if they're still there, but there used to be just two like covers for planes, right? Because Rusty had like a Cessna and then... Henry Combs, that's one of the homeowners, Harry Combs, he was the president of Learjet, which became Combsgate Learjet, and he had a Piper Cub out there. And he was the only one who could keep his plane out there after the golf course was built because a Piper Cub doesn't need a ton of runway to take off. And during the Bush presidency, Dan Quayle was vice president, and he would come out two, three times a year and play golf. And he was on the back nine at one point. And every time Harry would fly, he would buzz his house to let his wife know to come pick him up because he was going to land. As fate would have it, Quail was on the tee box near the Combs home. And, you know, Harry's coming in, flying low. And all these, like, so when, when Quail would play, there would be Secret Service agents behind him, with him, and ahead of him. All of a sudden automatic weapons start flying out of golf bags and Dan Quayle's going, calm, it's okay, it's, it's, it's okay, it's, it's Harry Combs, it's okay, it's okay, put it away, put it away. And <laughs> yeah, so that was, that was a wee bit of excitement. Yeah, that was a real interesting deal. I remember uh, we had my mom and Joe Bistido, the, the bartender, we all did, because there's two shifts or three shifts of Secret Service and we had 
we cooked them Thanksgiving dinner. What an interesting group of guys to talk to. It was, that was a neat time. Tell me about some of the rides. The big one was uh, Vulture um, Cookout Grounds, and that one's really neat. You go out past by Hospital Hill, and then there's a little place called Trade Flats, and you'll see a turnoff there, and it's a couple miles down the road there. And that was always my favorite because it's you kind of go up this hill, and you're looking right at the front of Vulture Peak, and there's a you know a big wash that runs down through there, and you know. The cookout hamburgers were the best thing in the world. They they do them right there. Was it a day long ride? It would be a day. Yeah, it was. It was all day. Like it would be all day Saturday or all day Sunday, and it'd be like a two hour ride out, and then you'd come straight back. But it'd still be an hour. You know, it was a that was a big event. Everybody wanted to ride. I think my my dad kind of put his foot down about that. He's like, if you don't or if you don't want to ride back, you got to find somebody to, to take your horse back because you can't lead them all back. And then they'd have there was another place east of Tommy Higgins's, and that one was a neat one, and we didn't use that one very much. They'd start getting warm in April and stuff. They'd have breakfast cookouts, but that, I can't, I can't remember the name of that one, what we used to call that sunrise or something. Skyline? Skyline. That's it. That's exactly it. I, and that one was, I really liked that one. I think that one was a really pretty place, and I've been out there a bunch since, and there's a, speaking of wildlife, there's a lot of deer out there in that area. And they were just cool because you go out there, and they had the turquoise, aluminum stackable chairs from like the 70s and there'd be a big fire um and they built these uh great i don't know i wasn't a cook on them so i don't know if they were great but they're nice little big square deals and they'd go out and they'd you know real wood real mesquite wood they'd light up a fire and get tin plates and go through did you do any moonlight rides and the moonlight, and the moonlight rides those used to just put my dad in a panic you know there's a couple of years i remember when we'd get, we had good March rains, the hills would just be plastered with poppies, and it was just so pretty. But yeah, it would be have to be a full moon, and people, be, you know, they'd have a few more cocktails than they would ordinarily have, like at a day cookout, and that might, you know, you'd drive two by two back all the way down Tommy Higgins's road, and then go through that gate and down that road. I remember that that used to just make my dad sweat. He'd lead it, and then you'd have it was almost like herding cattle. You'd have a couple cowboys. Do you know how many he had on his staff? Um, it was it was typically like five, if I recall. And were they mainly men wranglers? He had one or two female wranglers throughout his career. Of, of and it was towards the end of his career, they got some kids counselors who knew how to ride. And they do you remember did, Caroline? I definitely remember. I still remember Caroline. I still see her a lot. Caroline did a lot. She was, I, I know she was a cowboy at one time, I think, for a whole season. Um, she was a kids counselor. She's entertained, um, played music. And, and a lot of the, there was also Cece and Moberstag, Anna Moberstag's sister. She was a kids counselor and wrangler. And, and a lot of times, in, in a, like Thanksgiving, Christmas, and part of like Easter break, there was a guy who had a house right by the D.C., compound there so when you're going up like right before you turn to kale bar just down there's a stables there uh bill clough his wife was a um school teacher in wicker she was my first grade teacher and bill clough was like this kids loved him or hated him he uh had these i remember these purple sunglasses that had extra lenses on them for cataracts (laughs) and he would he took. He was the kid specialist. He'd take the kids out at, at those times of the year. 
you know, he was kind of, he was gruff and he'd like tell those, you know, tell kids in no uncertain terms, God damn it, you do it this way. And, but he'd also play with them too. Like there's the rail and he'd grab them by their arm, I'm going to stretch you kid. And, and he had good little games of, because a two hour ride for a 10 year old or an eight year old was, could, could be long if you weren't like into it. And he'd like snap off greasewood trees and the goal was to pass them. You'd grab, pick it up and then you'd go a little further and you'd put it somewhere so, so the guy behind you would get it. And he'd always say this like, hooray, we're lost. And some kids would panic at that, I think. How was your dad with the children? Good. Actually, he was, re- he was really good with the kids. He didn't take them out on ride anything because there was just too much more for him to do of take, you know, fast riders, medium riders, slow riders putting them all together, kind of, you know. Tell me what you remember about Edie Gant. Edie was fantastic. Edie was quite a lady. She was always just, like, super kind, like, very grandmothery to me, and reserved. And she definitely, I think, had a strong influence on Rusty about how how the place should be run and what we are going to do and kind of like a parent looking at their child growth. You know, I would think that she would have been very happy with what the ranch became. Just watching it go from no golf course, one tennis court, and a stables to, you know, a a very unique and wonderful place. Um, I would be proud. I would be proud of my son. I would be proud of, you know, my husband for having the vision to, like, find this land and start it. And But, yeah, no, she was always like really super kind every thanksgiving and every christmas we ate in what is now the gift shop it used to be the private dining room it's like this curved building and they'd have a like this long table kind of fit in there and the department heads and the Heyman family or the gant family all ate in there and so from a very small age i remember you know the children should be seen not heard kind of a dinner there and just like can I go now can I go now yeah that was uh, that, that was just like a staple that, that's where we were having Thanksgiving that's where we were having Christmas dinner for sure you know what do you think their greater challenges were back then oh uh, wow in the work yeah. environment my parents are like just the resort itself your parents my parents um working with family did they see each other very much they did actually they ate lunch together every day but a lot of times they would eat. There was like the staff table and the buffet used to be kind of between the main dining room and there's like 20 feet there and they'd have these like Arcadia doors. And then there was a fireplace in the corner with a DeGrazia painting of a Mexican corn vendor. And there would be like a six top there and the department had like that would be kind of a rotating thing for department heads, and they would they'd sit there every day. They have lunch together every day. Um, quite often, they'd have dinner together because you know my dad would have to go up. The biggest challenges for my parents, and I think even for Frank and Millie, and the the core staff would be fatigue. Spring break started in March and then ended in at Easter, so it would be like six weeks. And the only day my dad would take off during that would be the, the Sundays were the only day they didn't have an afternoon ride and he would literally do those those six weeks without I don't know as he got older that would be very fatiguing um, but you know you were so close to the staff you know you're seeing those people every day 
you know, just personal fatigue of, but you know, at, in the end, at the end of the season, everybody was just, you know, all that stuff was washed away. You know, did they have some of the staff, same staff return every season? They would. When I look at that, that that would be a win. And were they seasonal coming from other ranches? Yep. Or some yeah. locals? There's always been a few locals, but it was mostly they do a hiring trip. So Rusty had relationships, of course, with Bishop's Lodge. And as time went on, they got kind of close with... Um, there's a group of privately owned properties. Tankaverde being one, Bishop's Lodge, Lost Cab. There's a place in Cape Cod called Waquasset Inn. These are kind of going away because the big companies are coming in and buying them up. But yeah, there's a consortium of those, and they kind of all, they, they meet a couple times a year, if I recall. And then Rusty would kind of go on these, with the general manager, and go on these hiring trips where they'd interview a bunch of people at these other resorts and then offer them jobs. What do you think kept your parents working at the ranch? Um, well, this is me speaking through my mother here. My mother understood that, that this is what my, my dad wanted to do. He wanted to be a cowboy. And she also realized that at his age, and as time was kind of moving on, there wasn't a lot of other opportunities for him to do those things, to do other things. You know, he was, he had an eighth grade education. You know, people say we're learning so much more now, but when I look back at what my dad got as an eighth grade education, it was pretty damn good, you know. Um, And so I think when my mom was going to follow my dad and stay with my dad, what he wanted to do. And, you know, I think he was... He was locked into doing this, and he, I think he was tired as he got older because um, it it's a physical job. I mean, saddling horses every day, unsaddling them, you know, it's a lot. What do you think is your dad's legacy at the ranch um, and your mother's? They were loved. I, I, I think they were, they were loved. You know, it's, that's a good question for now because the environment like I've kind of watched it almost go kind of full cycle to where my dad is all and mom are almost like myths now because there's been enough people cycle through that there's new people taking their place or like Joe Bistado is going to be one of them right I mean Joe's been there forever I can't think of any like specifics but I just remember them saying you know oh do you remember when Buford did this my dad I would say represented the the cowboy scene at Lost Cap for a lot of years. And I think the cowboys that followed, like Dick Fredrickson's a hell of a cowboy, hell of a guy. He, he's so much more broad spectrum than my dad was. But I think he really had to fight like my dad's legacy to have his own footprint, if that makes sense. Because he's, you know, he's a hell of a guy. and But it just, you know what I mean? There was that Buford legacy that will be, you know, it would be one of those things of like, well, they didn't do it that way. I can imagine that would have been a hard road for him and for anybody else that took it over. Who did take it over after your dad? Dick Fredrickson took it over after my dad. And I want to say Dick did it for three, maybe four years. Then CW came in. CW was awesome. CW was like a wild... I remember when I was a kid looking up CW, like, that guy's having fun. You know, he he was kind of like... uh, My dad would be like the old school cowboy. Dick kind of followed in my dad's footsteps of old school cowboy but dick you know had a bunch of broader spectrum of what the cowboy life was in the southwest and cw was fun you know he was like the new generation of wild and woolly cowboy guy you know and about how old was he 
he he must have been in his like late twenties, early thirties, and he liked to dance with the ladies and have a few beers. And I think CW kind of had that. This is a good time to be alive. This is a good time to be in Wickenburg, Arizona. You know, there's many opportunities here for a young, attractive guy like me who's outgoing. But yeah, I, I have always had high regards. He was a funny, vivacious CW for one, two, maybe three seasons. Then Dick again. And I want to say Dale, Dale was in there at some point too. Like maybe before or after. Dale worked for my dad. And I want to say that Dale might have worked for my dad the year he got sick. Like my dad might have hired him, but only worked with him for a couple months. Dale was head wrangler in a window there. It might have been like the year my dad got sick or the year after. And it was Dick, CW, Dick. And I don't know where where they went after that. And how did your dad die? He got cancer. He had cancer. Um, it was either smoke. I mean, he smoked a lot. And smoking or melanoma. You know, he was from... We didn't do sunscreen back in the day. <laughs> what do you think the legacy of the ranch is under the Gant family? Um, wow. To me, it would be... It would be the last... The last of the true deed ranches. They were the last of the kind of private original luxury resorts. And luxury in the 80s didn't mean what it means now. You know, back then it meant kind of roughing it. There, there's no more places like the ranch anymore. And they held on to it longer than anyone. And it, to me, it's a little bit sad that there won't, there's not going to be a place like the ranch anymore. You know, everything now is is like the corporations are buying these places. I'm glad to see that some of the homeowners bought the ranch and maybe it'll stay a little bit rustic and a little bit, you know, independent. But yeah, I mean, the Gantt legacy is, you know, it's to me, it, it, it was one of the last great independent. I want to say, I'm trying to find a word for like Western resort of authentic, but like kind of an adventure resort, if you think about it in the, for the time period. Like people now do base camp in Nepal, but... But back then, they were the first and, and kind of one of the last of, of that sort. The hard part, I think, is just the market. Because we're, you know, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, do it for a weekend. That was fun. Not the springtime would be the same families the same week. Because there was like a Chicago influx and a New York people, you know, that would come. Like there's one family I remember came forever, the Ludlows. And he was the guy, he was an advertising guy from New York. And he would come three times a year. They would come Thanksgiving, Christmas, and, and spring break. And he was the guy who invented the copper tone ad with the dog pulling the girl's shorts down. That was the guy that came up with that. Do you think it was harder or easier with no technology as far as work goes? Let's say your mom, she's in sales, they had to mail everything out. She made Rusty buy her a computer because she's like, I have to send out these mailers. They didn't have email then. But I need to, you know, make all these forms and make all these, this, you know. And your mom is still alive? Yes, she's actually, she's 89. And she was living with me till about Christmas and took a fall, so I got her. She would have great stories for you. Because she would love to talk about the ranch. She loves talking about the ranch. You mentioned Cattle and Balls. And Gold Rush Dates was always a big deal. The ranch would always have two entries. And they, they had the covered wagon which I'm assuming they still have. And then they do a float. 
my dad did the float a couple of years, and I remember every time my dad did the float, they won. First year I remember my dad won is he shoot a horse. They got that big Chevy flatbed truck, and then they put a horse on it and an anvil and put a forge on there, and my dad went through the parade. Oh, he was shooing a horse? He shoot well, a horse while they went through it. And he got sh- yeah. first place that year. Yeah, they year. won first place that year. I remember that one. What does Rancho de los Caballeros mean to you and your family? That kind of is my family, and it is, it's my youth. It's everything I remember about my youth. Everything from it being open and vibrant to summertime of pushing all the furniture in the middle of the lodge and covering it up with uh, sheets. And then there's the picture of the caballero. There's like, you know, when you say Lost Academy, there's that giant copper uh, hood um, on the fireplace. Um, that tile wall by the pool table with all the individual tiles of like Henry Wickenberg throwing the gold at the donkey. Yeah, I mean, that is my childhood. It wouldn't, it would be, you know, everything about it. Like, yeah. And what do you hope the future of the ranch is? I hope the future customers can come see the magic that's there um, and understand the life is best in the simple things, you know? To walk into like and see the front desk I mean, let's be honest. Where was the bar lost cab? How that that is definitely not contemporary colors, or but the nostalgia in that of like, wow, this is you know something special. The turquoise and the pink, and you know, it's it's really it's a unique, unique place. And what a unique place to spend your childhood. Yeah, I, I was the luckiest kid in the world. Luckiest kid in the world. Thank you, David, for sharing your stories. And thank you all for taking the time to listen to another episode of the Souvenirs Podcast. Tune in next week for more stories about life on the ranch. This podcast is produced by Susie Miner. Background music written and performed by Dick Fredrickson. We love to support local. So if you're an Arizona business and would like to sponsor an episode, head over to our website to inquire. Thanks for tuning in. Till next time.